Hello and welcome to another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your curly-headed host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for listening to the sports podcast extravaganza, where we're going to be breaking down the hockey and basketball playoffs. It's that springtime season. First up, it's going to be Dan Mount of the Hockey Writers. He covers the Nashville Predators. we got to talk about that. There's, they are in the conference finals, where they await the winner of one of our two Game 7s tonight. Anaheim, Edmonton, Washington, Pittsburgh, Ottawa clinched their spot in the conference finals last night. We recorded this on Monday. We didn't have that info in front of us, but a lot to talk about there with Dan. And then Bradford Bruns, good old Bradford, back again on the show to talk about some round ball action. Cavs and Warriors remain perfect. And a lot of other storylines to talk about. We finally got a close game last night. We're going to get to that in a second as well. But Bradford Bruns, Dan Mount, Money Mitch Effect. You know what time it is. Let's start the show. It's that time again to talk hockey, NHL playoff action. The second round still going. We're getting into the later stages of that. And with that, we're going to bring onto the show for the second time, making him officially a recurrent guest, hockey writers, reporter for the Nashville Predators, Dan Mount. Dan, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Hey, thanks for having me, and I appreciate it. Dan, I'm going to start with the the team near and dear to your heart, the team that when we had you on a few months ago, we weren't sure what was up with them. They were they were marred by inconsistency, but for the first time in their franchise's history, the Nashville Predators are going to the third round of the playoffs. They beat the Blues in six games. Dan, they swept through the Blackhawks. They beat the Blues, two teams that had been in their way in years past. Was this on? Any, I know you were very optimistic, but was this on a lot of people's radar going into the playoffs that this could actually happen, that they could get to NHL's Final Four? I didn't think so. I, even I, when I saw the series pairings, they go, "Okay, Nashville's going to give them a harder time." A lot of people just have said, "Well, Chicago's going to win this one, five or six. They're going to move on to the next round, and uh, Nashville's going to reset for next year." But uh, it all started clicking around March, early April for the Predators. I mean. If you look at Pecorino, he had more points than Duncan Keith, Jonathan Taves, and Patrick Kane yeah. in that first-round series. And, uh, I mean, and I saw a lot of Blackhawks fans blaming Corey Crawford. That's not on him. you got to score goals. And I think when they finally got the defensive pairing right, pairings right and when Peter Laviolette hit the forward group, when he put uh, Victor Arvidsson up on the first six, I think that's when the Predators really started hitting their stride. Yeah, the Crawford blame is funny because if you watch a couple of those games, he actually kept it from being worse. But this Blues series, uh, we talked about a Blues team that was very physical, that you know wanted to change their identity, trading away Shattenkirk, uh, going to Mikey O midseason, firing Ken Hitchcock, and the Predators were able to play a versatile, a versatile game against the Blues. And I say that because they beat the Blackhawks with a lot of speed, with a lot of pressure. They knew they were going to have to, you know, be very physical with the Blues, and yet they were able to do that. Are you at all, uh, I guess, surprised would be one way to put it, but are you shocked by the fact that they're able to play a variety of styles? I look at a team that doesn't really have a whole lot of weaknesses to the untrained eye. No, I'm I'm pretty surprised, but uh, if you look at it, it's what you said first. This team gets it. This team's playing any way you can. The uh, Blackhawks want to you know they wanted to play a track beat, and the Predators like, all right, we'll, we'll dance with you. And then the Blues wanted to muck it up, uh, slow the game down. 
and um, get physical. But Nashville, to their credit, they hit with them. I um, mean, those, those second lines, they got Colton Sissons and Austin Watts, and they were throwing their weight around. And, uh, and it seems that Peter Laviolette would always have the right touches when he put guys in the lineup. Yeah. Throwing a, a Vernon Fiddler, and uh, look at Vernon Fiddler got the game-winning goal in game one. And then he put in a Cody McLeod. He he, he always seems to hit the right buttons and everything, and the, of putting the different guys and plugging them in, especially when uh, Kevin Fiala went down. They just, all right, next man up, and uh, it seems to be working. It's incredible. I'm glad you brought up Laviette because he did just that. He had guys that were scratched for almost the entire first round, a lot of this series. Smith would come in, Sissons would come in, and they would just fit right in. And I know a lot of people will say that that or what he did or what any coach that does that, that it's luck. But Laviolette, in his case, he's been doing this for far too long. And I, I think it was genius, some of the moves he made. And bringing in fresh legs on the back end, I don't think the Blues were ready for that, especially given their injuries. It's nice to have that depth, and it's also true to what David Boyle's done. I mean, uh, they have 11 guys on the roster that have been drafted by him, by David Boyle. It's nice people to reach in the cupboard and pull, say, I'll have Craig Smith come in, or I'll have, like I said, Fiddler or Cody McLeod, or I'll, or I'll toss a Colton Sissons into the lineup. And uh, Laviolette seems to not get the credit he deserves. I mean, everybody talks about the more elite coaches in the league, but uh, Laviolette, I think, is the only coach to turn around an 0-3 deficit when he was coasting the Flyers when yeah. they beat the Bruins. So uh, this man knows what he's doing, and uh, I was kind of hoping that – if the uh, NHL effort did go to the Olympics, I would want him to coach Team USA because I think he'd be the perfect fit. Yeah, it's not a hard act to follow either after uh, John Tortorella's failed experience in the World Cup of Hockey with Team USA, but that's for another time and place. Uh, the last area of this team I want to discuss with you, Dan, is the defense. I mean, that was remarkable what this team's done. A lot has been made about the trade for P.K. Subban with Shea Weber, and they're both great players. P.K. Subban is, mm-hmm. is doing well, but it's the depth on this defensive unit. I mean, they have Roman Yossi, who's a budding superstar in this league. Ellis, who had the point streak. Weber as well. I mean, they are they are deeper than I think a lot of people realized until this run in the playoffs. Is that something that we could expect to see continued? I mean, it's hard to play as good as they've been consistently, but Nashville's depth on the point is second to none. It's incredible. I mean, most teams are jealous that don't even have one good pair. The Predators have two really good pairs. And I think when they put the right pairs together, that's when everything hit. I mean, everybody talks about, well, P.K. Subban is flashy and he does offense. He's fantastic on the power play. And he is. But he was a good Vladimir Tarasenko to two goals. I mean, he frustrated him. It was incredible watching the chess match between Yo and Laviolette because every time Tarasenko would step on the ice, P.K. Subban was like a shadow following him. And, that defense can really, I think, really frustrated St. Louis. And uh, the uh, scouting staff was still Housley and company. They really did their homework. I mean, it's nice to have an assistant like Housley, who is a pretty good, darn good defense in his own right. And probably, uh, I think, a guy that could, should get the Buffalo Sabres job if they can wave out the Predators. But uh, it's incredible seeing this, this group, these four defensemen. And let's also talk a little loving for Yannick Weber and Matt Irwin. They, they do some a lot of the dirty work, you know, of the checking line and everything. They they do a pretty good job to spell the other two pairs. It's a nice luxury to have when you don't have to lean on your top guys as much with the depth. But, you know, Ellis and Yossi, I mean, that guy just gets better and better every single year. I do want to mention 
the Blues for a second here, Dan. I, I think a lot of people are going to have their thoughts on the Blues season, but I think it was a good one considering the fact that they had a lot of turmoil. They moved on from a coach midseason. I think this is a team that should be interesting to watch if they can make some tweaks to the lineup, add some pieces to the roster, and, and get more familiar with Mike Yo's style. I think this could be a dangerous team for years to come. Absolutely. Remember, they did not have Robbie Fabry in the lineup. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought they would have waved the white flag when they traded Shattenkirk to Washington. I thought, well, I guess St. Louis is either going to try to fall in the water or they're going to grab the last spot. But uh, give Mike Yo credit. They took to his style. He adapted a little bit. And uh, nice job by Jake Allen as well. I know there was a lot of people saying, oh, did we trade the wrong goalie? Did we, should we have traded him and kept Brian Elliott? I think Jake Allen did just fine. And, uh, like Corey Crawford, he held the Blues in some of those games where Nashville was just peppering the net and everything. But uh, I like the Blues. I like their, their more hard-hitting style. They're a little more different than what Ken Hitchcock used to have. I think they need some tweaks, and they, it's nice to have Vladimir Sabotka come over from uh, Russia just in time for the playoffs. That's a nice uh, little uh, playoff present to get. Yeah, it sure is. They, they run into the hot goalie in Pekka a in a very peaking Nashville team. Lastly, on, on this team, on this city, Dan, that it pretty much showed the world, so hockey fans, that this is a hockey town now. I, I think this has to mean a lot to the city of Nashville. You saw the crowds that as the games got bigger, they got more engaged. I can't, I can't think of a, a better environment for this playoffs than what Nashville's uh, done. I think that's fair to say. Remember, this is a team that was almost out the door to Hamilton with Jim Balsillie by a board of governors and voted it down and the community came in and rallied it and saved the team and a lot of hockey players a lot of journalists have said that this is an underrated underrated uh, arena to go to it's always loud the fans are always engaged so you have a little more knowledge than what you would expect and I think what the model is it's if you're in a non-traditional market you stick your arena in the middle of downtown so you get a lot of walk-up traffic yeah. that's how Tampa Bay does it I think it's like Phoenix is failing and everything because Glendale's nice, but but you gotta put you if you're gonna not do this you gotta put your arena right in the middle of your metropolitan area and just rely on walk up traffic. And that's what the Predators did when they were not so good. But now uh, it's gonna be hard getting a ticket for uh, national games for the foreseeable future. <laughs> I think that's very fair to say. Well, the Predators are moving on to the Western Conference Finals, first time in franchise history. And we'll see how far they can go. Still chatting with Dan Mount on the Money Mitch Effect. Second round playoff discussion. The Predators win in the second round. They will face the winner of Wednesday night's, one of Wednesday night's Game 7s between the Anaheim Ducks and the Edmonton Oilers. And Dan, this series, I, I put it this way, these two teams are pretty much meant for each other. Because you can't get a pulse on what this series, what each game is going to be like. We've seen a lot of blown leads. We've seen comebacks. We've seen dumb penalties, terrible turnovers, amazing goals, you name it. And I look back at games five and six, and that just tells the whole story. Oilers were up 3 nothing with about three minutes left, three empty net goals from Anaheim, and they went in double overtime. And then game six, the Ducks gave up five goals in the first period. Is there any rhyme or reason to what we should expect going into game seven? I think you need to reach a grad day in which plus we're going to get. I don't know what the heck's going to go on. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, uh, I think you can attribute the blown leads to this Oilers team not being there for a long time. This is a young team, and I think they're only going to get better with age. But everything's well, Anaheim's going to pull off game seven, but 
not so fast because the Ducks have had yeah. <laughs> terrible luck in Game Seven. You remember National went in there, National went in there in Game Seven and uh, punked them pretty much in and their home ice when Anaheim was the top seed in the West. Well, you let's, know? yeah, let's talk about that for a second. You really are backed into a corner. I would never advise betting in general, betting on this series, on this Game Seven. You have a young Oilers team that's shown that they haven't really been able to be trusted in big moments, even with Lees. And you have a Ducks team, Dan, that for the last four years has lost a Game 7, a Game 6 on the road, and then a Game 7 on home ice. So history doesn't really know what to do, uh, but I think the Ducks, with that experience, would have a slight nod. But again, it's just a coin flip at this point. I think it's very imperative for Edmonton to score quickly and score like the first one or two goals of the game to get that sinking feeling into that, you might lose that crowd at the Honda Center very quickly if yeah. they, uh, Edmonton gets a couple of goals early. I look at the Anaheim team, Dan, and I, and I think Getzlav is the one guy that's been virtually unstoppable in this series. I think it's his size, his ability to play power forward hockey. Edmonton's mm-hmm. defense is going to have to improve a lot, and I think Cam Talbot, I mean, both goalies have been inconsistent, but Talbot's going to have to be on from the get-go because we've seen that he can get a little shaky at times. On the flip side of that, Gibson is just as shaky. So you got a guy like Dreisaitl who's on fire. McDavid, we know how well he's doing, but he's been getting kind of bottled up by Kessler. I'm with you. I think the start is crucial. I think you, the team that comes out in the first period is probably not going to blow a lead in this one. Yeah, I think you got to rely on your role players. You wonder if he's Kleppel and be playing, but of course... Uh, you probably play if you try to amputate his leg or he probably try to come out and yeah. the game seven, you know. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see the coaching decisions that uh, Todd McClellan or Randy Carlisle are going to do. Are they going to mix their lines up if things aren't going well? I mean, like you said, Bryce has been absolutely on fire and everything. And uh, I, I trust Cam Calvert a little bit more in the situations because he's played some pretty big hockey games for the Rangers. Remember when uh, – Henrik Lundqvist went down a couple of years ago with that puck to the throat against the Panthers. Cam Talbot just stepped right in, and he basically carried the load to the Rangers to the President's Trophy that one year. He sure did, and it's funny because we'll get to the picks at the end of the show, but it's going to be a very, very tough decision between these two teams. Dreitzel just kills the Ducks. I mean, he's got about, what, 10 or 11 goals uh, in his short career against the Ducks. I'm also interested, Dan, in how this game will be officiated. We talk about that in hockey a lot, but it's clear these two teams want to play completely different. If the refs are a little more into letting some, letting some things go, I think the Ducks have a huge advantage. If they don't, if they call more of the clutching and grabbing, the Oilers are going to have a lot of power plays and a lot of chances to score. So I think that's as big a key as anything in this game. Absolutely. I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they are if it's officiated tight, it's going to favor Edmonton. But if they let... It, let it ride. I like Anaheim's chances in this one, but uh, you really can't tell what the refs are going to call until you get get into the first couple of minutes and get in the flow of the game. Yeah, it's it's going to be a wild one The uh, at the Honda Center in Game 7, the winner to play Nashville, and it should be very, very exciting. The winner will have home ice in that series, so we'll see where the Western Conference Finals open up. Alright, Dan Mount on the Money Mitch Effect. Let's move to the Eastern Conference and Dan, we are recording this on a Monday night, right after the game went final. Capitals and Penguins. Mm-hmm. The Capitals win five to two in a game that really wasn't even that close. Two late goals by the Penguins. It was five nothing for a lot of that third period. 
Dan, the Caps down 3-1. Same old narratives are rearing their ugly head that they're going to blow it again. Another short season for the President's Trophy winners. They win this time. They win game five trailing going into the third period. And they win a game six on the road in Pittsburgh. Not what a lot of people expected. I know there's still one game left. But I think it's fair to say, if you would agree, that the Capitals these last two games have been the team that we saw throughout the season. They've been clearly the better team. I don't know what Barry Trotz has said to him, but said to them, but this capital team is just amazing. But uh, if I thought anyone was going to be down three one, if you asked me at the beginning of the playoffs, if anyone got down three one, I would put my money on the Capitals and probably be the team that would overturn a deficit because you got guys like Alex Ovechkin are on a mission. Braden Holtby, veteran trophy nominee, can uh, shut down really good offenses, and they play that tough metropolitan division, which is. When you get in those interdivision games, it's almost like a playoff game every night between all those teams. But, uh, you know, the pressure's all on Pittsburgh right now. I mean, Washington, I think, is playing with house money. They got the home ice. They were like, well, we're down, we were down 3 1. Nobody's expecting us to get that, expecting us to win. I think the Caps are basically playing with house money right now. You know what's interesting about Trots before we deep dive deeper into the personnel? Uh, Dan, is that you've seen it in Nashville that this is a guy that loves to make adjustments and is very even-keeled when facing adversity. Mm -hmm. He dropped Ovechkin down to the third line. He dropped him down to the third line. Ovechkin was fine with it, and it's almost swung the series, playing him with Wilson and Eller in a more physical style. Mm -hmm. And what's incredible about the depth, and just to put this into perspective, you know they move up Burkowski on that line, and they don't even miss a beat. They still have an un- unreal unreal depth at the forward position. Defensively, they have a mixture of what I would say offensive-minded players and defensive-minded players on the blue line. Mm-hmm. And the adjustment that stands out to me is just switching how they've approached the game. They, I think they realized early that they can't run and gun. They're not just going to be a team that, well, we'll get our chances, you'll get yours, and we'll be fine. That probably beats every other team in the league but the Penguins. They're playing mm-hmm. more defense. They only allowed, I think, eight shots through two periods tonight. They're really committed to playing a different type of a more methodical process, and it's paid off. Yeah, and, and I think it's also a tribute, though. Uh, but first of all, for, I think it's very Trotz channeling a little bit of old Nashville. I mean, those old Nashville Predator teams that uh, Trotz had used to bludgeon you. They used to beat you 2-1, 2-0, 1-0. They used to pound you into the dirt, you know, and uh, used to grind you to death. And uh, I think that's why he eventually had to leave Nashville, because the personnel David Poyle gave him were guys like, all right, let's get up and down the ice. But uh, let's also talk about Alex Ovechkin. Years ago, if somebody like would have asked him to play defense, he probably would have been like, uh, giving you a sideways look. Probably. He absolutely trusts Barry Trotz. It, it's a wonderful thing to see his maturation. I mean, uh, I remember when uh, reading an article when they asked Alexander Radulov, a guy who's had problems, the war with Barry Trotz in Nashville, and you know his behavior back then. They asked him point blank, how is Alex Ovechkin going to do with Barry Trotz? And he's like, he's going to do wonderful. I trust Barry Trotz. And he goes, I'm sorry for the stuff I pulled, but he's a great coach, and Alex is going to thrive and succeed. And uh, I think Raz was, was on to something before anybody else was, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny if Radulov says that, and it's a guy, like you said, that has problems. The words carry a lot of weight, and you know, it's it's interesting, too. I think the team themselves with Trotz at the top, you know, they go into game five in the third period down 2-1, but we saw a Capitals team that was close before he made some saves and got some help with the post. 
we also, you know, had the good luck charm rub on the post. But he, you know, they thought they were fine. You could tell they came out and said, you know, we're fine. Twenty minutes, it'll happen, and it happened. Three goals in like two and a half minutes. Not something you'd see in Capitals teams in the past. You know, there's still a game seven. We don't know what to expect. Pittsburgh's an ultra talented team, but this was mm-hmm. game six. Was the first time I thought, wow, Washington is beating them to every loose puck. And I don't know what that all count for in game seven, but it was a clear advantage tonight. Hey, every bit of possession helps, you know, every bit of numbers, uh, every bit of chances help. And I have a feeling that, that this game seven is going to be tight. It's going to be uh, close to the best. And I, I, I just got a feeling that some, a greasy goal is going to decide this whole thing from uh, some bottom six player. I, I just got that sneaking suspicion. It's not going to be Crosby. It's not going to be Obi or Malkin or Backstrom. <laughs> It, it's gonna be somebody like maybe like a Tom Wilson type or yeah. type of guy that's gonna get some sort of garbage greasy goal like laid on, and it's going to be the difference because that's how I feel. I have a feeling on the series because it, it's been back and forth, and I, I just think Washington's got the momentum right now. They they're playing like they don't have a care in the world right now because they realize, all right, if we lose this series, hey, we got down three one. You know, we didn't have enough time. You know, we we put ourselves in a hole. And up until the third period of Game 5, Fleury had been amazing. I mean, he I think mm-hmm. he practically stole Game 4 for his team. I mean, you could talk about Washington's transition defense that was abominable early in the series, getting much better. But Fleury made some amazing saves. And I don't know, maybe he's a little wounded now. I mean, he, could, he can always dial back the clock and give you that one big game. But Fleury and, and some of the turnovers Pittsburgh made tonight, I think their defensemen and some of their forwards in their, off, in their defensive zone aren't really doing him a lot of favors. You can't, I mean, we know this, Dan. You cannot turn the puck over and give the puck to guys like Ovechkin, Oshie, Kuznetsov in the slot. It just, it's almost game over at that point. Yeah, and it's very uncharacteristic of the Penguins since the coaching change last year. The defense, well, that's what got them to the Stanley Cup, got them to the Stanley Cup last year. They were careful, and they relied on good goaltending. Like you said, I think Mark Fondre Fleury has faced a lot of vulcanized rubber this series, and, uh, it might be getting to him, especially the the Capitals like to fire pucks on the net. They they get a lot of shots. They generate a lot of traffic when they do get the puck, and uh, I think it might be getting to him. And I think uh, this is a time you miss a guy like a Matt Murray. Yeah, or even a Chris Letang on the point, which we always said, well, it's Pittsburgh, they'll be fine. You're starting to really miss him now. Uh, I'm not going to count the Penguins out when you have the firepower no. they do. do. Malkin looked really good at, towards the end of this game. Crosby, you know, we know the concussion issue is lingering. He, he took a he took some some hits tonight. He, he had a couple stumbles, got a bloody nose on a on some friendly fire from a teammate stick. So I, I think Crosby's a guy that we're going to see exactly how much he has left in the tank. He's not someone that's going to go out quietly to the night. I don't think he's fully healthy. We'll wait till the injury report comes out whenever their season ends. But this is going to be uh, an interesting Game 7 because I think a lot of these teams are, are hiding some injuries and, and don't have as much left in the tank as we might hope. And I really think that the Penguins, I really wish they would have maybe held off Crosby until a Game 7. I, I know you're trying to finish off the Capitals and everything, but you've beaten them without Crosby before. I would, would probably would have tried to hold them off, give them a couple more days of rest and everything, but I guess uh, I'm not, that's why I'm not making the decisions and everything for the Penguins. But uh, yeah. I really wish they would. I really wish they would have held him off until all right. We need him for this do or die game. Kind of like what happened with Steven Stamkos last year. The uh, Lightning did a really good job of trying to hold him off until they absolutely needed him, and I think they should do that with Sydney. 
Yeah, it's tough with the comparing different different ailments, even the same ailment across different players with the blood clot issue with Stamkos versus concussions for Crosby. I, I think I'm definitely with you on game six or game five he should have been held out of. Game six, I could kind of see you had a couple extra days. You could kind of, you know, get back to that point in game six at home. But uh, it'll be interesting. Well, game seven, Wednesday, is the first game before game seven between Ducks and Oilers, and it will be a good one. All right, one more series to talk about with Dan Mount, hockey writer's contributor, on the Money Mitch effect, and that is Rangers and Senators. Rangers-Senators game six will be Tuesday, and it will be a doozy because, Dan, the Senators are up three games to two on the Rangers. And I have a take that I don't even think is that hot. I think the Rangers have been the better team for most of every single game in this series. It's funny how hockey well, works. Yeah, like I joked with my, one of my friends, you know, if these were 55-minute hockey games, the Rangers would have swept the Senators. And they would be waiting for whoever uh, whoever came out of Washington, Pittsburgh. But uh, it's why you played the full 60 minutes. I know it sounds cliche and everything, but... That's why they play all, all the games. But uh, you got to give the Senators credit. I mean, uh, they adjusted really well after uh, the Rangers really brought the thunder in those uh, two games in New York. You know, they really did a great job uh, uh, turning around their home form, which was abysmal for like the later part of the season. And now they've won a, a bunch of games at Madison Square Garden in the road in the playoffs. And they really put the body on Eric Carlson. They were really making life difficult for him. But, uh, I'll tell you what, Craig Anderson's played fairly well in the games in Ottawa, but uh, I like the Rangers going home. I think you're going to have a third game seven because Henrik Lundqvist is pretty money in elimination games, and if you get Lundqvist to a game seven, I think if it goes to a game seven, despite it being in Ottawa, I think the Rangers win the series. I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard for, on one hand, to predict against Ottawa because they're the team that just won't die. Guy Bouchard, no. don't he, doesn't he, he doesn't even uh, react anymore when they score like like games to tie in regulation. He's like, okay, this is just what we do now. But game three and four, which was fascinating, was the Rangers just, like you said, they just said, oh, you want to be this freewheeling team? We're going to hit you in the mouth for 60 minutes. And Ottawa was kind of in a shell for a lot of those two games. And in game five, New York gets up early. Ottawa rallies back. The Rangers score late. But Ottawa's ability to rebound, to to answer, you know, every every hockey coach will tell you one of the most important shifts, if not the most important shift in a game, is right after a goal. Ottawa might be the best team in the league at that because they get scored on and they're right back in it. They're right back playing. They don't let momentum get against them. And I think it starts with the depth that they've built in that organization. A guy like Kyle Turris scoring another overtime goal. Hoffman up front has been amazing. Peugeot we know about. But Eric Carlson, what he's done, Dan, and what he's done on one wheel, basically, it is one for the ages. This is a transcendent playoff performance by a guy that will go down in the history books as one of the greats. Yeah, I know a lot of people like to bag on Carlson and say, well, he's not really a true defenseman and everything, and he's just an extra guy who plays back hole further. But I think Carlson is shoving a lot of doubters up. And, uh, and you also got guys like Stone who have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, and uh, you really got to give credit to Guy Boucher. He's been fantastic. I think when, under the, when they won the last time in the playoffs, when they lost to, Montre- lost to Montreal, when uh, Dave Cameron was in charge, when he took over Paul McClain, you saw Montreal get a couple of goals, and it, it rattled them. It doesn't rattle Ottawa anymore. Yeah. The Rangers could get up a couple of goals, and uh, it doesn't rattle off. The Senators, they're, they're very resilient, and uh, I think they could give if they win the, win the series. 
they could give Pittsburgh or Washington a tougher time than advertised. Yeah, well, and, and I look at that goaltending duo for Game Six and, and maybe a Game Seven, and we know about Hank. He, we know about King Hank in New York, and he's. I think he's what like a game away, or he's tied with Joseph for most wins by goalie in the playoffs without a Stanley Cup. I mean, he, he's just been remarkable for his entire career in these big pressure moments. But, you know, as you said, Craig Anderson's not going to back down. I mean, just like Lundquist, he's had moments where he's been a little vulnerable, where the offense has kind of broken through on him. But he's made a couple big and a couple underrated saves when they've been, you know, maybe down a goal or two and kept them within striking distance. So I don't think Anderson's going to back down either. You know, and Anderson's had one heck of a year, you know, off the ice too with his wife, Nicole, having to deal with cancer. And uh, I think there are a lot of people that would give up, would love to get Rupert Broadway just for that reason alone, because uh, Anderson has bounced back. He's been a uh, one hell of had one hell of a season despite despite all the troubles. And uh, it looks like he bounced back in Game Five, especially when uh, Boucher uh, slipped Mike Condon for the third period to give it. I guess to get it reset Anderson a little bit because sometimes the it gets a little fast out there in the class, especially when it seems like the Rangers just flying around and. Uh, make it life miserable for you it gave Anderson time to reset time to refocus and I think that move by Boucher uh, the pull for the third period of uh, game four really helped sure did and it's setting up for an interesting game six on Tuesday night Dan Mount Money Mitch Effect will wrap up this interview with a final part where we're going to talk about predictions and we'll start with that Rangers Ottawa game because I think this show is going to be posted after game six, uh, the morning of mm-hmm. Wednesday. So do you do you like mm-hmm. that to go to seven? And ultimately, do you think the Rangers win, or do you think Ottawa holds on and wins this series? I think, it, like you said, it's, we're going to put up the game seven for the uh, Anaheim Edmonton series. If somebody gets out from early lead, say if the Rangers get out a couple of goals, I think this goes to game seven. And uh, I trust Henrik Lundqvist in game seven. I think he's one of the best. In game seven, only it was just recently he lost a game seven. You know, I think it was to Tampa Bay last year, but uh, or a couple of years ago. But usually, if Henrik Lundqvist gets you to game seven, I trust him. And uh, despite them being down three two, I'm still looking Rangers. For the other predictions, I, I'm going Washington just because I think the momentum's on their side. They're home. The pressure's off. Then they'll be fine. Like I said, if they don't win this series. I don't think there's going to be too much. It's going to be one of those rude missed opportunities. I think, well, Pittsburgh just got out too early. We tried. We, we just didn't have enough in the tank. Out West, I'm going off the board. I'm taking Edmonton. Okay. Wow. I'm taking Edmonton wow. because I think that game six beating really established something, and I think – there are guys in the Anaheim locker room that have the yips and everything. <laughs> Game seven at home again, third year in a row. They've been uh, they third. They lost three years in a row in a Game seven. And oh, it's five. <laughs> no, Dan, it would be five if they lose this year. They've literally, really? yeah, they've literally lost four straight. It started with the previous Western Conference Detroit Red oh, Wings okay. in 2013. So that would, <laughs> would be five straight years, and they were up three two. In every series. Well, I'm going to say Rangers win game six, but I, I can't pick against Ottawa now. I, I just think there's too much magic in that barn, in that building. And I think the Rangers might have slipped a little bit in front of Hank. I don't know that they can put together two straight 
just workmanlike performances there. I'm in agreement with you on the Capitals, though. I think this was the game that decided the series. Mm-hmm. The Capitals came out and, and asserted their dominance. It, it really hasn't been close since that third period of Game Five. I like the Capitals at home there. I'm going to say Edmonton, or I'm going to say, excuse me, I'm going to say Anaheim. And uh, it pains me to have to buck history, but I thought Anaheim had a chance when they were actually down 0-2 going back to Edmonton. I just think Getzlav and I think Perry can can find a way to get through this Edmonton team. This would be, if we're doing a power ranking of their Game 7 losses in these series, this is up there. Because this is an Edmonton <laughs> team that for all their talent and experience, they're, they're young, they have flaws, they have a goalie that's not a Pekka Renee that's not really shutting them down to Jonathan Quick. So I'm going to say no. the Ducks, but I have very, little to no confidence in that last pick. Yeah, because... Uh... Like you said, the history's against them, you know? I mean, I mean, it's a good team, but uh, until you do something, I'm still going to pick against you. you, know? yeah. <laughs> until, you until you prove me wrong, I'm not going to go against you. Oh, for sure. That's a safe way, a safe creed to live by. Well, Dan Mount, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for appearing on the Money Mitch Effect. And enjoy the run for Nashville and, and also get ready for whatever the conference final is, uh, a lot of yellow versus a lot of orange. So you'll have that to look yeah, forward to. Yeah, you know what? If, if you get Edmonton versus Nashville, I think you might actually break next to all the speed that can be out there. It's going to be tough for people that are adverse to flashy colors, but yeah, it's going to be exciting. I think it's good to see Nashville, a new team, reach that mix. And, you know, it's good to see this league, this sports league that has some parody in it. I'm not going to name other leagues, but we, you guys kind of know who we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't build super teams in the NHL. We, we do the things the old-fashioned way with drafting and uh, trades and all sorts uh, of good stuff. That's fair. That's a very fair fair take there. Well, Dan Mount, thanks again for joining the show. Hope to chat with you soon. Awesome. I'm available every month, man. <laughs> Huge thanks to Dan Mount for coming back on the show, talking some hockey. He does a great job covering it. Check out all his stuff at the Hockey Writers, where he covered the Nashville Predators and a couple of other subjects as well. Again, we talked about that before the Ottawa Rangers game. Cannot believe the Senators kept it going there in the conference finals. Two big game sevens tonight. I can't wait. I hope that is the same sentiment in your life as well. All right, now we're going to switch sports. Bradford Bruns back again. NBA playoff action. It has not been the best. I know I just took a little bit of a shot, you know, a little joking roast action at the NBA playoffs, but has not been good. We recorded this for game five between Spurs and Rockets, which is hands down the best game in the second round so far. We're going to talk about that series. Celtics Wiz still going on. Big game five tonight. And the Cavs Warriors were getting some R&R. Some, they got their feet up on the couch, you know, shoes off, maybe a little pina colada or whatever, as they wait to see who they're going to play. It's Bradford Bruns, Money Mitch Effect, NBA Playoff Talk. Here that is right now. All right, it's NBA Playoff Talk, and it's on the Money Mitch Effect, bringing back onto the show, very good friend of the program, Bradford Bruns, to talk about the second round of the NBA Playoffs. Bradford, thanks for joining the show. Mitch, always a pleasure, my friend, and we've got some very intriguing matchups into which to dissect, and then let's just go over a couple of those others with broad strokes until we get to the inevitable Warriors-Cavs 3. 
See, yeah, it really is inevitable at this point. And I, I want to start what I'm about to say with this. I'm a basketball fan. I've been a fan my whole life. That said, this second round has been as bad as anything that I can remember. Um, there's mm-hmm. been one single-digit game so far. We're recording this on a Tuesday as Spurs-Rockets are just getting going uh, in Game 5 of that series. So with two series wrapped in sweeps, with the other two series at two games all, we've had exactly one single-digit game in the second <laughs> round. And that was Cavs-Raptors Game 4 when the Cavs completed the sweep. So I just want to throw this out there for you. Is this as bad as it's gotten for the basketball playoffs in a competitive standpoint? Yeah, that was a somewhat deceptive seven-point outcome, Mitch, in Game 4 when you had the Cavs putting it away. But I have to concur with you insofar as really you have seen a large, large percentage of fairly wretched basketball, completely combustible displays by a couple of teams. It really surprised me in the case of the Toronto Raptors. But in the grand scheme of things, as you had suggested, it really does feel as if the, the gap or the chasm if you will, between the truly elite in this league and then the others in the association, second, someone even say third tier. It's so vast now. It's so wide. And so many people do feel as if they're gearing up for what seems like the most inevitable matchup in a few weeks to come, of course, between East and West powerhouses. But yeah, I've been somewhat disappointed, just disenchanted with the overall level of competitiveness. And I think first you need to look at Toronto, look no further than Toronto and how it went down, how it looked virtually listless in so many of those contests, Mitch versus Cleveland. And I would argue right now that LeBron, when you're talking about the way the Cavs are playing, how a few weeks ago we discussed, can they flip that proverbial switch, especially on defense? Well, that's no longer in question. But Toronto, this is a group that last year, bear in mind, all right, took Cleveland, took Cleveland to six games in the conference finals, 151 games this year, the same number as the Cavs during the regular season, and basically was a complete no-show in the second round this season. I find that fascinating. I find the team president the day after the final defeat coming out and saying you need basically a reboot in terms of culture. I think that's very interesting, too. And what once appeared to be one of the up-and-coming teams, not just in the Eastern Conference, but in all of the NBA, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's in disarray going forward, but you've got Kyle Lowry opting out. You know that Serge Ibaka isn't going to be coming back. A lot of questions there, which really just adds fuel to that fire or to the conversation surrounding the cream of the crop in a relatively low number in that regard. Cavs, Warriors, maybe a couple of others, and there you have it once again. The rich just getting richer. So what you're saying is the Drake curse is alive and well. I think that's what the summary of that was for Toronto. What I'm saying is that what I'm saying is that you may need a pace setter on offense next yeah. season, and Drake could be a bargain bin option. <laughs> he, he might be. Uh, I'll, you know, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I think this is a stage now where we're basically just trimming the fat before we get to the inevitable. Yep. You mentioned tiers in the NBA. We know what tier one is, and tier two might just contain two or three teams as well. We'll see what happens mm-hmm. in the next round, but you know, and I'm look, I'm, we're both hockey fans as well, and those playoffs are exciting right now, and especially when you have teams that are top seeds going out early. I understand yeah. the need for you know the the best of the best playing each other and how exciting that can be, but I think the one thing fans like, and this isn't a knock on those top teams, this is you know kind of a, a wake up call for everybody else. We want to see competition, you know, we want to see yeah. some drama. I mean, yeah, an upset if a finals were to not include either the Cavs or the Warriors, it might feel like a little bit of a letdown. But you know, when I turn on, and I'll put it in a fan's perspective, Bedford, I know we, we take great interest in this, but when I turn on a game at night, I want to see a competitive basketball game. And I think that's the lacking part of what's going on. 
we're not the only ones saying this. You hear former players, Barkley, the TNT cast, say it's kind of boring to watch these playoffs. And when they say it, when I say it, you know, I don't think it's a knock on those top teams. No, and we've seen flurries. We've seen outbursts here and there. And, oh, here's a 26-0 run from the Warriors against the Celtics. Oh, 22 to zip. But you've seen that. That's the thing, the ebb and the flow, the topsy-turvy nature of the postseason to this point. You haven't had thoroughly competitive contests from start to finish for all 48 minutes. Case in point, that's Wizards-Celtics series. The, the allure, the overall number of different storylines that you can draw from right now, really relatively low, and that is disappointing, particularly considering you still have a number of marquee stars remaining in the playoffs. Yes, I know quite a few have actually gone down due to injuries during the course of the postseason as well, but just to see, to look at those box scores, to review, to basically check in and then check out almost immediately, Mitch, after a quarter or so, already knowing that the result is essentially a foregone conclusion. With all due respect to the Utah Jazz, I think that most of us felt as if the Golden State Warriors would throttle them in four straight. But on the other side, I at least expected a halfway decent effort from the Raptors, maybe stealing a game, perhaps not two, but Mm -hmm. staying close in those games up north in Canada. Nothing of the sort. And even, yes, the two series right now in which you have the two teams deadlocked at two apiece as we talk here on this Tuesday evening, up and down, we haven't seen them really at each other's throats for the course of an entire tilt. So, yeah, that has definitely been disheartening. I don't just think for the casual fan, for the hardcore fan, but you're trying to bring in more of an audience. This is your marquee time of the year to showcase your product. And right now, a lot of the basketball fans who aren't diehards like you and me are probably left wondering, what is it to which I'm supposed to be paying attention here? I'm not getting that appeal. No, and, uh, you know, it's funny, too, because... You look at the series that are 2-2, and you think those might be the games with closer contests, but it's almost like a team gets that mindset, let's just steal one on the road, and then let's just you know, get back home and, and, and figure it out from there. So it's, it's a little interesting. We hope the competition will keep up, but I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about those two teams, the Cavs and the Warriors, both 8-0 in the postseason, yet to lose into the conference finals. The Cavs punched their ticket first Sunday with a sweep of the Toronto Raptors in four games and on the Cavs front I think it's fair to say two things that they're a completely different team in the playoffs that is capable of doing a lot of great things but to Bradford and I guess I throw the Warriors in there it's still safe to say they haven't really been tested yet I mean I don't know what we're supposed to learn from this team good or bad from dismantling the Pacers and the Raptors I completely agree, and let's be frank, Indiana actually gave them a couple of games at the very least. I do wonder if Indiana and Toronto were to wage battle if the Pacers actually wouldn't prevail in a series of that nature, but you're right. It was Paul George against everybody outfitted in, of course, the wine and gold. The Cavs route the Pacers in the very end and then move on to a Toronto series after an entire week's worth of rest. You expected Cleveland to acquit itself well in that opener. However, I didn't expect anything to the effect of the three-point deluge that we saw in game number one. And it really just continued, to be honest with you, for the remainder of the series. And perhaps the most surprising aspect of it all And granted, Cleveland, I still don't think Mitch is anywhere close to actually playing its A-grade level basketball on the defensive end. But in terms of shooting it, bombing it from deep, you're seeing that from basically anyone and everyone in the rotation. But LeBron James, you know I'm not shy about waxing poetic when it comes to number 23. But let's just sit here for a minute and appreciate what we're seeing in terms of an unparalleled consecutive run 
of great games from downtown. This is somebody who last season, we were looking at him and thinking, okay, where, where's the three ball really going from LeBron? Now, he's never been Steph Curry from three-point territory. However, in this postseason, you're looking at a guy who in that Raptors series was confidently jacking up seven three-pointers, averaging seven three-pointers per game and nailing yeah. about 3.5 of them. He's shooting, Mitch, 47% from three in the playoffs. And I pose this question. If he's doing that, if he's hitting it with an incredibly at an incredibly effective clip, and he's still pretty decent from the free throw line, he upped that percentage from the charity stripe in the series versus Toronto to 83%. He's getting to the line a combination, a total of 37 times over the course of Game 2 and Game 3. Is there absolutely any way that you can hope to defend him? The answer, I think, is a defiant, clear, authoritative no. He's going out there. He's getting 35-39 at will while still finding a way to basically get into the contest from an offensive flow standpoint in the second quarter and beyond. It's just a masterful stroke of basketball genius that we're seeing at this juncture. And almost single-handedly, he's able to propel this team to those rarefied offensive heights. I will say this. I need to see better than 39% shooting from Kyrie Irving. I need mm-hmm. to see that. I need to see Kevin Love still doing his thing on the boards. I want the same from an offensive rebounding perspective from Tristan Thompson. Although the perimeter defense, it is vastly improving with each and every game. J.R. Smith, who can come and go in that regard, has been very stout so far. I love the fact that Amon Shumpert is popping back into that rotation, once again, finding a role, a niche for himself. And sooner or later, you have to think, all right, the Cavs are going to be tested in some capacity. I don't necessarily know, though, if it's going to come before the NBA Finals. All due respect to Boston and Washington, what I've seen, the inconsistencies from those squads during this series, that series in hand, doesn't give me any pause whatsoever if I'm a fan in Cleveland. So a couple things on LeBron, and, and we know how amazing he's been, Bradford, and this, the three-point shooting is an added wrinkle to an already, you know, superhuman player. But I'll say Ooh. this. I, I don't know that – it's funny because he probably I, – I agree with you. They probably won't really full-on get tested till the NBA Finals. But I don't know if that continues to keep up. I still think he's an effective player. I just don't know that he's going to get the ability to just destroy teams like he's been when they get to the Warriors, presumably, in – the finals not to say that he won't have an ultra effective dominant series mm-hmm. when they get there i just think that's more of a reflection of there's more to take in a weaker eastern conference field and he is absolutely taking advantage of it but the big thing with the Cavs, bradford you know you mentioned defensively and how we're not really sure still yet if they're going to reach that a game a level probably won't until the finals mm-hmm. i want to see that a lineup that was raining threes you know that and we, and we won't see it until then but i want to see how they defend because that lineup, when they had Corver out there, you know, they mix in Love, they mix in Channing Fry at the five when it's just three-point shooters everywhere. It was basically unguardable against the Raptors. If that lineup can play a shred of defense, that could swing a potential finals matchup. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's the one thing that I don't know that we'll see. And, and, and lastly, on LeBron James and on this Cavs team, I think the only way to try to go at them and try to, you know, get may slow them down is to go at them on the other end it's it's hard enough to defend them you got to have an offense that pushes the tempo that gets everybody involved toronto did not do True. that they played individual iso ball with demar Derozan. game one was awful lowry getting hurt was a was the fork in them figuratively and i think you need mm-hmm. a team that's going to make every single one of those players work because one-on-one iso ball is not going to cut it. it's going to keep them too fresh on the offensive end 
No, and let's not forget as well, one player we haven't mentioned, a completely, I wouldn't say under the radar, facet or principal component of this team, but someone who could be of just extreme importance if and when the Cavs are able to advance to their third consecutive finals appearance. And that would be Darren Williams. When you want to talk about somebody who potentially adds that increased depth to the backcourt, somebody who can play in a number of different speeds, a number of different styles there, really, whether you're talking about executing in the half court, if need be, or still pushing the tempo. We've seen spurts here and there from Darren Williams, but I think the best still could potentially be there yet to be unveiled. And hey, let's face it as well. This is somebody coming off the injury, coming to this championship continuing team, somebody who is really displaying for the entirety of the league exactly what he still has to offer to various organizations as he gets closer to, of course, early 30s, mid 30s. This is somebody who next year, let's be frank, he's not coming back to the Cavs essentially on a minimum deal. This is somebody who's exhibiting exactly what he still has left in the tank. And physically speaking, it seems as if he has a lot of that. So I would expect him, depending on matchups, of course, to also play a vital role to get significant minutes down the stretch and once again give another wrinkle about which the opposition has to worry. It's going to be exciting to see, and if the Cavs get tested in the next round, it'll be the first time this playoffs, but they are 8-0 moving forward. Money Mitch Effect with Bradford Bruns talking NBA second round. The Warriors join the Cavs in the conference file that's an undefeated 8-0 record. Sweeping through the Jazz, which, by the way, Bradford, I haven't had you on and had, haven't had a chance to gloat since the Jazz beat the Clippers in the first round, so consider this that. Do it. Hey, <laughs> this is your platform, my friend. All credit, all kudos should go to you. And I wanted to see a better series. I won't, I won't say a better effort from Utah because I think the Jazz, all things considered, certainly you put injuries into that category, no question about it, did what they could against Golden State. You're still a year or two away, I would say, but Utah certainly, certainly fared very well. And it's a fun, exciting team to watch too. In the future, though, you do have to wonder, the all-star representative, Gordon Hayward, he can opt out this summer does he become an unrestricted free agent but i digress yeah and it's funny that series against the clippers was a war of attrition if i would have told you bradford that in a game seven at staples rudy gobert had one point and fouled out i think you would have liked your chances of the clippers winning but it's a funny sport sometimes <laughs> was that not the most confounding first round series in recent memory not though real. that you can recall how many different things how many different irregularities so it was uh, it was crazy and uh you know, I do think the I do think the Jazz have something. Maybe if they can, if they can keep Hayward, if they can keep that culture that Quinn Snyder's built, there could be a team there built on the anchor of Rudy Gobert. But for Golden State, two. You know what? I, I want to point out two different things. And one is that the road game three last year, team that had home court throughout the playoffs this year and last year, they lost every road game three last year. That was the game they lost. Yes. And this year they would have if not for the addition of Kevin Durant. It was another game where the Splash Brothers went cold. The offense wasn't there. But unlike last year, they have this guy, number 35, who signed a big free agent deal who said, all right, guys, I'll take over. I thought that was the first time you really saw Kevin Durant's true value. I'm with you. And in light of, well, let's think about it. Let's really dissect the 
the number of games, the amount of action that Kevin Durant has actually had over the course of the last couple of months. And to me, that performance in Game 3, the defining 38-point outburst there, leading Golden State, propelling the Warriors to victory, it's so impressive when you do think about just how little he has actually been a part of the main focus, the main hub of the action for the Warriors as of late. And you have Durant capable of doing that on any given night. He comes back. He's looking great physically right now. He doesn't have to do nearly as much in Game 4, but Steph Curry gets his groove back from beyond the arc. He scores 30 points. You have Draymond, don't call me Chuck Barkley, going for a triple-double. And everything just seems to be coming up roses with the dubs, despite, you don't want to say a leadership void there on the bench, but this team, it is a little different when you think about the overall outlook, I believe, going down the stretch with the uncertainty of Steve Kerr. As for the on-court product, though, it's hard to really poke any holes in this team right now because it's taking this product extremely seriously, this undertaking extremely seriously, despite what you may have heard going into Utah. All right, we like, we get it. They don't necessarily like, night, like the nightlife there in Salt Lake City. But to me, one of the foremost differences, Mitch, when I think about the Warriors right now, just the level of engagement, I'm looking at the defensive end, and we keep coming back to this as really a calling court or not for some of the would-be championship contenders. But just think about how Golden State closed that series versus Utah, holding the Jazz to 37% shooting, forcing their shooters off the three-point line, rotating to absolute perfection. And you know you're going to get that from Draymond Green on a nightly basis, whether he's playing the five, four, it doesn't matter. He's going to give you his best effort. He's going to give you everything there on that end. Klay Thompson, likewise, on a lot of nights. To me, though, Andre Iguodala. He looks engaged once again. He looks a bit fresher. Let's be honest. During the better part of the regular season, the Ig Dog looked old. But the playoffs have arrived. Iguodal is feeling it a little bit. He's been there so many times before. He knows when to reach down and get that extra ounce of energy, especially on the defensive side. And that's the big difference. Golden State right now communicating so well defensively, really looking the part of not only an extremely gifted, as we well know, offensive squad, but getting the job done defensively, too. And it, it doesn't appear as if there's going to be any stopping this team moving through the Western Conference Finals. I do think you could have an intriguing matchup one way or the other. But Golden State, for all intents and purposes, is playing as well. And now with all the cast members reintegrated into the fold, too, as I've seen basically all season. Yeah, it's not exactly breaking news that there's better nightlife opportunities <laughs> in Los Angeles for Salt Lake City. Oh, yeah. I, don't think we're <laughs> I don't think that was a hot take at all, so... Um, but you're right. And game four, look, that was the other thing. In, in these two sweep opportunities in both game fours, they put together their best quarters of basketball in their series, respectively, in that first quarter each time. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, too, and I know, you know, last year, the bull in the 3 1 lead, the jokes keep coming around, but this team is locked in when they have a closeout opportunity now. You could say that at least for the last two games. They've had a chance. It would have been really easy to just, you know, put it in cruise control. And if they win, they win. If not, they can go back to game five. But they're on a mission to at least get out of a series, end it quick. And I think we saw that as well. No, you can serve as much energy as you can because anticipating the next several weeks, the challenge that could be brought from the side there in the East, you want to, especially considering your overall cast, your cast of linchpin players, I would argue. I'm not saying that the Warriors don't have considerable depth there on the bench but linchpin players guys who are truly going to be impactful isn't as deep as the Cavs so I think you definitely you want to dispose of these inferior foes as quickly as you can and the Warriors now know how to do that they've got that instinct Toronto Raptors could learn something from that in the years to come but 
Golden State, again, rounding, he can't even say rounding into form because for the stretch run of the regular season, this is basically what we saw from that team with or without Kevin Durant locked in last couple of months. They're good to go. Well, we're going to move on because I have a feeling that we'll be talking about those two teams for uh, a couple weeks to come. So that's enough for the Cavs and the Warriors today. But let's stay in the West on the Money Mitch Effect with Bradford Bruns. The second-round matchup still going on, the Spurs and the Rockets. And we might actually have our first uh, close game out West with this game close going into the end of the first half. I think it's about a one-point game. It's a one-point game. Spurs are winning by one with about five minutes left in the half, so something to monitor there. But what a chess match this series has been. What a truly remarkable chess match between the Spurs and the Rockets. On one hand, you have a Houston team, Bradford, that's just going to jack up a bunch of threes. They have a lot of ball handlers. Harden, Lou Williams, Eric Gordon at the forefront. But they mm-hmm. can get cold at the at the wrong time as well. The Spurs are, are almost a one-man band at this point offensively with Kawhi Leonard. They have the great Greg Popovich behind the bench. But I'm seeing a lot of mismatches on both ends that are they're getting exploited on night-to-night basis. Is there one thing that we can key on in the final three games of the series? I like the fact that you referenced the personnel and the chess match as it is such as it is tit for tat, both coaches tonight. When you think about heading into game five with the Spurs going back home in the Lone Star state. And I look at Greg Popovich, his decision to start a Patty Mills in place of the rookie Murray. That's not to say that Murray didn't have fine performances in games two through four. Hey, Tony Parker goes down with an injury. A lot of people probably thinking in a national level, how were the Spurs going to necessarily recover from this, especially after how great Parker did look for stretches of the playoffs up until that point. I love though that the Spurs right now are, are essentially, it's a bold move, but trying to counter the rocket strength with a little firepower of their own. And I say that because Patty Mills is somebody who, as a role player for this team, has been in this particular case, particular situation, time and time again. And I do think that he gives you enough ammo from deep to force Houston out of its comfort zone a bit more, at the very least, defensively forcing them to, to rotate, forcing specifically Patrick Beverly to do a bit more of an arduous job there on the defensive end. So the Rockets' defense maybe extended a bit further, but then what does Houston decide to do? What does Mike D'Antoni decide to do? Oh, Ryan Anderson, he hasn't been nearly close to as effective down the stretch in the regular season of the playoffs so far. You know what? We're going to rip that size, rip that height overall. Doesn't matter. Out of the lineup, Eric Gordon is going right in there, inserted into the starting five. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see not only the remainder of this evening, how it plays out, but in the last two games of this series. Because to me, there's absolutely no chance that this matchup, Mitch, doesn't go the entire way, doesn't go all seven games. And I, I do think, though, as far as individual players are concerned, you know what you're going to get from Kawhi Leonard. How much more can he give you? I just I don't think that you can really wing it there on a hope and a prayer and say Kawhi Leonard can give us that much more statistically speaking. It's LaMarcus Aldridge. The yep. guy comes and goes from game to game. He is an absolute disappearing act in game number one. A lot of people are perhaps wondering why in the world, how in the world, did the Rockets end up blowing out San Antonio on the ladder's home floor in game one? It's because LaMarcus Aldridge, once again, as was the case too many times, this season, particularly in the last couple of months, he didn't show up. Now, last couple of games, he's been more effective. The blowout loss, notwithstanding in game four, but I want to see him be more of that authoritative guy. I'm not saying that the offense at any point in the future is ever going to run through him again. This isn't Portland, but he needs to be more than just a competent 
second thought, secondary option to Kawhi Leonard. He's got to step up in the fourth quarter of these games, and he has to assert himself, especially on the offensive end, because the Spurs desperately need, they're in dire need of that secondary scoring option. And LaMarcus Aldridge, it wasn't that long ago, he's not that far removed from being an elite player in this league. There are mismatches to exploit down low, in my opinion, against the Rockets, and he's got to be somebody who's doing a lot more than just spotting up and not necessarily using that frame of his, which can be so powerful, which has been so great in the not-too-distant past. He's got to be more aggressive. He's got to be tougher. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the mismatches. He can't be passing out of the low block when he has a guard like Harden or Gordon guarding him. I think we've seen that yeah, too why? many times. I don't, I don't get it either. And, you know, you mentioned Kawhi Leonard, how important he is on both sides of the ball, defensively especially. I think the biggest thing for the Spurs team to have a – have a success the game plan of turning Harden into a scorer is the best way to go in my opinion game three mm-hmm. he has 40 plus points but he had to earn every single one of them it was a hard 40 to get and his teammates didn't really do as much around him he didn't create for them so I think that's the way to angle right. that's why guys like Danny Green are ultra important the length he has defensively as a knockdown shooter transition D is where it's at though in this series because you you heard Greg Popovich say after game four if you saw our transition D you would have traded all the players and I would have got fired which is a phenomenal quote but it's true if they play poor in transition D maybe without maybe with the exception of Golden State Houston will burn you more than anybody in the league when shooting threes in transition so I think that's the key to this series going forward I think it's obvious the Spurs don't want to completely run and gun with that Houston team but they can't be afraid to, as you said, exploit the mismatches, move the ball quick when there's two free points to get when they get a switch. But, hey, I, I don't know where this is going to go because how how can you when a game has had forced blowouts and the series is 2-2? That's also, though, Mitch, why I, I do question to some extent, is it that San Antonio is just so poor when it comes to execution, getting back in transition defense, being able to locate the gunners and the shooters for Houston, or right now, Is it fair to question in 2017 from a personnel standpoint strictly, do they have the guys to be able to really, and yes, it's effort, obviously, to a large degree. We understand that. But the guys who consistently give that to you in that respect for 48 minutes, I'm thinking about the guys, the guys on whom they're relying the most. And Danny Green, you still know what he gives you from from both ends of the floor, really, and especially from a shooter's standpoint. But Danny Green is up there now. He's not the same guy, in my opinion, he was just a couple of years ago. Pau Gasol, obviously, you're, you're just skewing older and older, with the exception of some newcomers, some guys who have arrived on the scene in the playoffs, like a Murray. But I question, I wonder, after this series, particularly if Houston is able to get through, able to overcome that home court advantage initially for San Antonio, are we going to see a different constitution, roster constitution, when it comes to the bit players or the role players next season? Because those guys now, as well, we've talked about the big guns seemingly for years on end. Parker, Duncan, retiring last year, Ginobili still hanging around. How long are these guys going to hang around when there were vital pieces as well aging alongside of them all the way. And now those guys, I don't necessarily think that you've repopulated the roster accordingly when that has to be attended to as well. We'll see what happens. If you're a Spurs fan, though, thank God for Kawhi Leonard because you at least have something to navigate you through what could be, as you said, some repopulating of the roster with three games left in this series. It's anybody's guess where this is going to go. All right, one more series to talk about. Eastern Conference now, Money Mitch Effect, Bradford Bruns. The Eastern Conference second-round series still going on. The Celtics and the Wizards. It's 2-2. It's going back to Boston. And it's pretty fair to say, Bradford, that the Wizards could have been 
the better team in all four games in the series to this point. I think that's a fair take, but it is 2-2 going back to Boston. I don't disagree one bit. And after the way in which Washington blew that early edge in game one and couldn't close it out and ended up not even being that remotely close, I wondered if, yes, even though you were talking about one game and one game only, is that going to be the nail in the coffin for the young Wiz for the course of the series? Now, Washington has rebounded in an incredible, two incredible effect over the last couple of nights. And we know about the prolific runs, the scoring runs that we saw back in game four. And I think about how Washington was able to execute Mitch and get up and down the floor. And so many of these teams, the elite level teams, we're talking about who's ready to move into that class. Maybe, well, I'm not ready to anoint Washington in that regard just yet, but I think about what the wizards are getting now from those supporting cast members. And John Wall, he misses his first nine shots in game four, still ends up having 25 plus in a great stat line. But it's not just the John Wall show and the John Wall show only, despite what you saw against Atlanta in that closeout opportunity in the first round. Bradley Beal, on any given evening, hey, he's turned into an absolute stud. And what was the biggest difference, I think, for Washington this year? The fact that Bradley Beal was able to stay on the floor for basically all 82 games. Now, has he completely shaken that injury bug, that injury-ridden label that he's been assigned with for the better part of his career? I'm not sure about that, but here's what I'm seeing and here's what I'm liking. You've got guys like Otto Porter Jr. They're going to have to make a big decision on him this offseason as he's set to become a free agent as well. He scores 18 in game four against the Celtics. You've got Markeith Morris, who is showing his medal, who is showing he's a guy with whom you don't want to trifle down low. He is getting very, very physical, and he is giving Boston's front line everything it can handle. He is giving you 15 and 5 and big time stats across the board right now. Washington can play at essentially any pace and just if they're able to take care of the basketball in that environment in the garden in Boston, I on paper and both just from the eye test, I think Washington is clearly and maybe by a fair margin as well a superior team to the Celtics. Now, you could argue that Boston still has the number one player, the number one bona fide threat in Isaiah Thomas in this series, but who else is going to step up beyond Isaiah Thomas and beyond Al Horford? We've seen too many lags, I believe, in Boston's play, especially on the defensive end, and I want to see how this team responds going back to Boston right now with some of those blue-chip, blue-collar guys. Can you get out and can you defend Washington accordingly? Because I'm seeing a team that is just so athletic with the starting five and all the way around. It's a faster team. It's a more athletic team. Is it a more skilled team? I think the answer to that question is certainly unequivocally true. And in a best of three setting right now, despite the fact that Boston has two of the last three, I'd be hard pressed to not take the Wizards, particularly considering how great they've looked in the last two games. And really for the better part of this series, with just a couple of lapses here and there in games one and two. I think mentally it's more of an issue because they know they can play with Boston. They know they can beat them and can be the better team. It's can they play a full 48 minutes on the road in that building? That still remains Mm -hmm. to be seen. But starting lineup-wise, they're up there with any team in the league. I mean, obviously you have your super teams notwithstanding. But what that team gives you, you mentioned all the pieces. You mentioned Isaiah Thomas on Boston being maybe the, the biggest threat in the series. John Wall's right there. And that's no disrespect yeah. to Isaiah Thomas, but John Wall, his speed, igniting that 26-0 run in Game Four, what that Wizards team can give you, I, you know, they got to get something out of their bench when Bogdanovich is knocking down threes, when they're going, you know, with Ubre when he is playing and not fighting, when he's back in the lineup, and they can get something <laughs> off of their bench, when, you know, when they're not losing a lot of points when Wall has to sit. I think that 
bodes well for that team. And in Boston's case, you know, it's interesting because they got a lot of young pieces. We talked before we went on air about potential staying power for both of these teams. But other than sure. Isaiah Thomas, I don't know who's quite there yet as a gamer, as a playoff gamer. Who's going to step up in the big moments? Who's ready to do that just yet? Isaiah did it all by himself in Game 2. But in Game 3, no one was able to stop the bleeding early. In Game 4, no one can stop that 26-0 run. And I don't know that they're there yet. You know, I don't know if it's going to take another piece if they get a good pick in Brooklyn's lottery pick. But I don't know that they're there just yet in Boston's case. They might have enough to get through this Wizards series, but I don't know if they're there yet to be a real contender. And candidly, this is the reason, this is the precise time of the year as to why you inked an Al Horford to that four-year, $113 million deal. Now, I don't know about you. Personally, I was a little skeptical as far as committing that much money to somebody whom, let's be frank, in the past couple of postseasons with Atlanta, yeah, he had his moments, but has he ever been looked at? Has he ever been viewed as somebody who can really be capable of taking that last shot, having that confidence, having the stroke to knock it down, getting himself free? Is he an offensive difference maker in the fourth quarter of the playoffs? I've had my doubts. I've had my doubts for a few seasons. And so far in the course of this set of postseason games, he hasn't done anything to dissuade me from still feeling the same way. At some point, Isaiah Thomas, Mitch, as you stated, has to get help from his ancillary cast members. But Al Horford shouldn't just be an ancillary bystander, especially in the stretch run of these games. He's not being paid as such. He's being counted on after a good regular season to step up and finally fill that void there in Beantown. And I am wondering, in the future, this team has potentially a fantastic makeup. You think about next year on the books, Mitch, they basically have just a shade over $61 million committed. They've got the first-round pick, thank you very much, Brooklyn. And you can basically play in the sandbox as much as you want when it comes to an ideal free agent signing, too. But in the here and now, Brad Stevens and his methodology, Isaiah Thomas, can only carry this cast so much. Marcus Smart, other glue guys, yeah, they're fine. They're all well and good. But we're the difference makers. We're the difference makers. I'm looking over at the Washington side. I see John Wall, he of the four all-star game appearances, playing as well as he ever has. I see the fact that he's only 26. I look at Brad Beal. I think about an all-star probably in waiting next season. He's just 23. If Porter comes back, he's in his young 20s too. And these guys are ascending. They're getting better. Has Nal Horford, has somebody such as Nal Horford already peaked? Are you going to get more from him? The same fair question can be applied to a smart, etc. Boston right now, seems to be very good as is Washington though ready to take that proverbial next step and I think that if Washington is able to truly close the deal in this series it's just going to whet the fans appetite in the nation's capital that much more going into next season and really I can't wait to see just how high this team can go next year Mitch I'm not saying that it's going to be the number one forerunner or a compliment to the Cavaliers as soon as next season but not that far away, one would imagine. No, and they could be the number one uh, contender to the Cavs in the East already. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I mean, we'll see if they can get there and get to the Eastern Conference Finals. All right, Bradford, let's, uh, well, there's two series left. Let's make some picks. Who do you think will be joining the Cavs and the Warriors in the Conference Finals? Well, with Washington, Mitch, and Boston set to go on Wednesday evening, the series shifts back to Boston, but I'll ride with the team right now, riding that momentum, and it would be the Washington Wizards. I don't think that Boston has the horses, especially on the defensive end, and Isaiah Thomas is never going to be renowned for his play on that side of the floor to hang with Washington and the Stallions in the backcourt. Can Boston rotate well enough, pick up those assignments on defense, and hope, hope beyond hope, 
that Beal and company get cold from beyond the arc. I don't think it's going to happen. I think Gortat also gives you enough down low to be able to counter what Boston is offering in that capacity. Washington, get this, get this. Four in a row wins in six because here's the thing. You don't want to go back to the Garden for game seven because Boston, I will play the history, the lineage card there, 18-3 and all time in game sevens in that particular town. You don't want to go back for a game seven there to Boston. I'll stay confident, though, in Washington to take care of business and set up an exciting, at the very least, Eastern Conference Finals matchup against Cleveland. On the west side, Houston, San Antonio, when it comes down to attrition at this point, and you are playing every other night, you're not getting those excessive idle evenings, those excessive days off. I think right now that Houston is a team poised to break out on the postseason win. And finally, I don't want to say vanquish San Antonio all told, but San Antonio is going to have to tinker a bit after this season, as I alluded to, is going to have to adjust accordingly. And that begins in a matter of a few days. Game five, obviously, nip and tuck through the first half of the proceedings. Kawhi Leonard, though, is just one man. The one-man bands, we've talked about it. That's basically been the primary theme here this evening. Won't be enough to offset everything that Houston brings to the table. When James Harden is scoring a plenty, he still has other individuals in the backcourt moving the ball. It's not just an isolated attack on most nights, at least, for Houston. Now, I do think Dan Tony's been so good about using each and every one of his primary cast members personnel-wise that you'll see Houston just with too many weapons, too many bombs for San Antonio to defend. So Rockets as well, going against the grain here when it comes to Game 7, actually. Houston on the road, Ooh. taking down San Antonio. Yes, Houston on the road. Still in the Lone Star State, of course, but taking down San Antonio. So, yeah, a couple couple of surprises, perhaps, when it comes to the eyes and maybe the viewpoints of the national pundits. Okay. Well, I'm going to disagree with you on the Spurs series. I think they can get through this Rockets team in seven games. I think Popovich can Good. make mm-hmm. the necessary adjustments. I think the Rockets are going to die by the three in at least one of these next next games. I think that is, mm. is coming, a cold shooting performance. I still like a couple tricks. I still like how the Spurs can, can mix and match and give the Rocket shooters some different looks to kind of frustrate them. And I'm, I'm trusting the system here. I, I think that they're definitely flawed, but I think <laughs> the Rockets aren't a perfect team, and I think the Spurs can get through them and give us that matchup in the playoffs with the Warriors that we haven't really seen since the Warriors uh, ascended. And then with all due respect to Isaiah Thomas, to Brad Stevens, and to my original prediction, when the Wizards were down 2-0, I think, like you, I think they're going to win four straight games. I think they have all the momentum now. I think they've understood how to put this Boston team away. They have that bench. They have Beal. They have all the weapons you said. And then they have John Wall, whose speed is second to none. You know, he comes in. He comes up and down the fast court, and he takes over. You know, he takes over the game, takes over the scene. When you're watching at home, it's like... uh, Let's put it this way. He's basically the Randy Marsh of the NBA. He just takes over every scene he's in. So I'm going to go with John Wall and the Wizards to go to the Eastern Conference. I thought Conference. this was a series. I <laughs> thought this was a series. You know, you know what I mean. I had to get a South Park reference in there. But it's, uh, yeah, I just think he, look, his apex. And honestly, I might be wishful thinking because I think Wall at his best, he, he wants to go at the best. He, he won't back down. He's great in closeout games, which we've seen. I want to see him play that Cavaliers team. I want to see him go at Kyrie mm-hmm. Irving and force Kyrie to raise his game or else. That's just me as a wishful fan thinking. He's got that bulldog tenacity, and you know what? I think that is rubbed off to a large degree on Brad Beal, too. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think that Wizards 
mentality overall in the backcourt, they are certainly not going to have it handed to them. They're not the bested from a mental standpoint. So the Wizards have all that, Mitch, and they have the most important defining characteristic or attribute of all, and that would be Seaman Jackson rocking a John Wall jersey at the Verizon Center. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. You know, it's always good to see who uh, who's going to be there, uh, which celebrity fans will show up. So, yeah, Jay, they've... Look, this is a busy time for D.C. sports. Both their teams still alive. For how much longer, we don't know, but it could be a busy uh, ju- busy late May, early June at the Verizon Center. So just Oh, and just the, the horror of having to turn into the... The tune into the awful baseball product thereafter. Oh, heavens. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan Snyder just bringing up the rear in D.C. sports. Thankful for all of that. But, all right, Brad. No this, doubt. Brad, for this was fun. Thanks for joining the show. We'll have to get you back on uh, definitely before the finals. We'll, we'll definitely be chatting before then. But who knows? I think uh, we're optimists here, and I think there will be some drama at some point before the finals tip off, I hope. Has to happen at some juncture. Hey, it's always a pleasure, buddy. Anytime, you know I'm down for the round ball talk. That's going to do it for today's show. Thanks again to Bradford Bruns and Dan Mott for being the guests on the episode. Thanks again to Brian Nelson for providing that spiffy-looking logo. Tim Adams for the hot beats that you hear going into each segment, beginning and end of each show. Thanks to him. And thanks to all you for listening to all the episodes of The Money Mitch Effect. We're at that T.O. episode number 81 right now. And we are going to just keep on grinding. That is for sure. You can find all the episodes of The Money Mitch Effect on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Money Mitch Effect right in the search bar. Pops right up. I'm at Twitter, MoneyMitchM21. The number 21, that is. Talking about sports, movies... It's pretty much it. I mean, I mix it in with some comedy takes, but you know, it's hockey time this year and basketball too, so i got to talk a lot about that. There will be one more show this week. Got a lot to talk about as we update the playoff pictures in both these sports and a big UFC pay-per-view coming up that we're going to cover as well. Thanks again for listening to The Money Mitch Effect. I am your host, Mitch Michaels, and until next time, please keep enjoying sports. Please keep enjoying sports.